Welcome to Centuries and Saints, episode two of season two of the podcast. This is Scott Matson, your host. Thank you for joining me. I'm excited to be here with you. I am a Bible and theology nerd, and I love getting to study the Word of God, theology, biblical history and languages, and all of that. So I'm very excited that on this second season of Centuries and Saints, we are looking at systematic theology. In particular, we're looking at the attributes of God. So on this episode, and for the next two episodes after this one, we will be looking at the holiness of God. Super excited this morning. Uh, Let's just get right into it. We have a lot of ground to cover today. Now, last week, I began a new multi-week, probably multi-month teaching series on the attributes of God. All right, and last week, we just did sort of an introductory lesson, an overview of God's nature and those things that we're going to be discussing. Uh, Now, I am very excited uh, to be learning more and more about the Lord, about this God that we serve and who loves us and who has saved us and who's called us his own. All right, I am super excited to learn more about God along with all of you. So, This week, and I'm going to say right now by faith, definitely next week, and possibly even the week after, (laughs) we are going to be taking a look at the holiness of God. All right, now I am excited to get into this study. Um, I was able to do some study this week, and man, I've been learning... And I've been humbled, and I have just been so grateful for God's love and goodness as I've been studying this aspect of our Lord. Now, just to kind of start this off, just to let you guys know, in case you're interested, uh, there is a teaching series. It's very, very influential and actually quite famous, and it's by Dr. R.C. Sproul. He has a teaching series called The Holiness of God. Now, it's kind of a classic. There's a book. uh, There's online lectures. And if you guys are interested, I would highly recommend that to you. All right. He, he doesn't get into, you know, peripheral issues. He just, in this series, talks about God's holiness and this part of God's character. So I want to just recommend that to you guys, uh, you know, and really it'll blow your guys' mind. It's amazing. It really is, you know? And so, um, man, well, let's just jump in. Uh, let's pray. Father, just bless this study in Jesus name. Amen. Uh, let's do it. Okay. So, first and foremost, there's a lot to cover here. I'm going to try and make this as you know linear as I can and have this make sense. There's just so much ground to cover. First thing that you and I notice when we begin a study of God's holiness, this part of his character, this attribute, is quite quickly we discover that in and of ourselves we are most unholy, okay? In and of ourselves, in our flesh, we are not holy, all right. Now, theologically, we know that. We know what Paul writes in the book of Romans and other places, you know, about how all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, theologically, we know this. You know, we all agree with this, obviously. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need to be saved. Okay, but I think that when we study the attribute of God's holiness, this part of his nature and character, uh, the awareness of that truth becomes greatly magnified, okay? 
Now, there's a very good chance that as we study collectively, you know, as, as myself and all of you listeners study together, uh, because I know that I felt this this week and I have felt this in the past, very likely that a lot of you are going to feel uh, sort of this sense of weightiness, of gravitas, for lack of a better word, on this subject matter, okay? And be more aware, perhaps, of your own unworthiness, of my own unworthiness, all right? That's very natural, and you know what? That's okay. That's a good thing. One of the Hebrew words for God's glory is the word Chabad, which uh, implies and carries with it the idea of weightiness, of substance, okay? So God's glory uh, is not sort of a, like a cotton candy, uh, fluffy, sugary thing, okay? God's glory, His holiness, is huge. It's weighty. It's substantive, okay? There is a gravity to it. Um, there is a sacredness to it that is impossible to get our minds around, all right, now, and as we experience and sort of hopefully through these studies, um, myself included, I hope that all of us can catch a glimpse <clears throat> of the unutterable, unspeakable majesty and holiness of God. I mean, it is just, it's breathtaking, and it's something that we all are completely incapable of fully grasping. But I really pray, you know, that all of us uh, just experience that sense of weight and of reverence you know, and of just awe at the majesty of God. Um, you know, it's just, it's incredible. In First Timothy uh, chapter 6, the second half of verse 15 and also all of verse 16, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God, writes, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. And that's what Paul writes in just one place, uh, talking about the character and the nature of God and the holiness of God. Now, that sense of awe and fear, you know, that sense that we are treading on holy ground, um, that's real, <clears throat> and that's good, and that gives us as believers yet another opportunity to just embrace the cross and to be so grateful that God poured out his wrath for our sin, not upon us like we deserve, but upon his son who didn't deserve it in our place. And that everything that we study about uh, God's holiness and every attribute of God, his love and his grace and his wrath and everything that we're going to be looking at, Lord willing, you know, we filter those things through the lens of the cross. It's so wonderful. For those of us who are born again, you know, who are in Christ, we have to remember that the Father, God the Father, from eternity past, chose us. He placed us and he received us in Christ. And Paul talks about that clearly in Ephesians 1. It was the Father's will and good pleasure to do that. Okay, so while we take a look this week and the next couple weeks at the holiness of God, we might feel, as I mentioned last week, some emotions and feelings, you know, that are kind of uncomfortable, that are foreign to us, that we're not used to feeling, uh, honestly, that maybe we don't really like. You know, that can happen when we study these things. But we can be confident, absolutely confident in the Word of God that the Father has justified us. 
and robed us in the righteousness of his son. And that we, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, we are the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, for those of us that are born again, that are saved. All right. So, as we study the holiness of God, keep that in mind. You know, that's been something that I've been having to remind myself of, uh, you know, because as I study these things and then I take a look at myself, I'm just awestruck by the dichotomy between me and God. How infinitely holy and majestic and glorious he is and how I'm not (laughs) in and of myself any of those things at all. And it just makes me so thankful to be robed in, in Christ, to be hidden in Christ, cleansed by the blood. As we move on, uh, let's read what our brother, the Apostle John, wrote when he received the revelation on the Isle of Patmos, okay, and when he was brought up in a vision to, to the throne room of God in heaven, okay, that's in Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 through 8, and it says this, John writes, immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and upon the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God." And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to say, holy Holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Okay, so that's Revelation chapter 4, verses 2 through 8. All right, now that was the second time in Scripture that we get a glimpse into the inner sanctum, the holy of holies of heaven itself, the very throne room of God. Okay, now the other time took place in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, which we'll get into momentarily. Now, in both accounts, it's interesting that the, the biblical writers tell us that those seraphim, those living creatures who stand in God's direct unveiled presence, continually cry out, holy, holy, holy. Now, I want to camp on this because this is important. You know, as English speakers, we miss something here that's present in the Hebrew, okay? Okay. When we as English speakers want to emphasize something, when we write, we will italicize it, we'll underline it, we'll make it bold in our Microsoft Word font, we'll put exclamation points at the end of it, etc., etc. You guys know. Now, the Hebrew writers of Scripture did the same thing. Okay, they had a way of emphasizing what they were saying. However, their method was different than ours. Their method was to repeat a word or a phrase. Okay, so if you know anything about the Hebrew language, especially biblical Hebrew, you know that when something is repeated, it is being repeated because the writer is emphasizing its importance, okay, and the absolute necessity of what is being said, all right? So that's why that happens. Now, for example, in Galatians 1, uh, chapter 1 of Galatians, there's an interesting thing in there that's kind of foreign to our English ears. Paul says... Anybody who preaches a different gospel is cursed. 
You know, let them be cursed, whether it's an angel from heaven or any of us or anything, let them be cursed. And then like two verses later, almost immediately, Paul repeats himself and says, as we said before, so I say again. And he repeats that same thing. Now, again, as English speakers, that's kind of odd to us. We don't normally do that. We don't usually say something and then immediately repeat ourselves. Okay, but our Lord Jesus did the same exact thing all throughout the Gospels. When we read his words, he says, truly, truly, I say unto you, or if King James, verily, verily. All right. Now, Jesus wasn't just doing that for fun. That was a Hebrew way, a Hebraic way of saying, listen, truly, truly. He repeated himself said it twice. That's a Hebrew way of saying what I'm about to say is incredibly important. Listen up. Now, it's interesting that in the scriptures, when talking about the attributes of God, the character and the nature of the triune God, holy is the only adjective that is is used three times consecutively. So that's elevating it to the third repetition, to the Hebrew superlative. Uh, So basically, what that means is that when we read both in the Old and New Testaments that the living creatures around the throne cry out, holy, holy, and then a third time, holy. Okay, that is God's way of telling us that his holiness is incredibly important, profound and deep and eternal. God is telling us, listen to me, I am holy. Okay, he is underscoring the fact And the importance of that aspect of his nature by having it raised to that third degree of repetition in Scripture. When you read, whether in Isaiah or Revelation, you know, holy, 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 three times, um, that is unbelievably profound. That's like us typing in all caps, underline, bold, italics with like 14 exclamation points at the end. Okay, in other words, hey, listen up. (laughs) That's what that means. Now... As we move on and we continue taking this look into God's holiness, this attribute of his nature, uh, we can gain another insight into it when we look at the creatures themselves that surround his throne. Okay, so when God created these seraphim, these angels, to minister to him and to dwell in his presence, it's interesting, he, he gave them, it says in Isaiah and in Revelation, six wings. Now we read in Isaiah that these creatures, with two of their wings, they cover their eyes, With two of them, they cover their feet, and then with two of them, they fly. Now, this is interesting. I believe that they cover their eyes because even these beings that are angels, created by God, they've never sinned, they didn't fall, so they're, you know, in a sense, they're sinless, all right, so they can dwell in God's presence. They still do not look directly on him. His holiness, his glory, his majesty is so overwhelming, so weighty. Um, so infinitely deep and profound that even these beings cannot look directly on him, on the triune God. It's just amazing. And we read in Isaiah that they cover their feet with their wings. Now, I've always wondered why that is, and the answer that I feel makes the most sense, I I actually heard from Dr. Sproul, uh, when he said that their feet are sort of a symbol of their creatureliness. Now, although the seraphim, again, they're without sin, these are not fallen angels, you know, they're pure in that sense. Um, they, their feet, kind of like when in the Old Testament when God had Moses and Joshua remove their shoes, their sandals from off their feet, because he said, the place you're standing on is holy ground. 
I believe that's why these seraphim cover up their feet. It's just a sign that we are in the presence of unutterable holiness and majesty. Um, And so we're going to cover our feet because this is just a sign of our creatureliness. The fact that we're created is so interesting. Uh, Because again, holiness means a couple different things. One, it means moral purity. Okay, which means that God is infinitely perfect and pure and righteous. He's separate from sin, without sin. There is no sin, no unrighteousness, no darkness, no evil, or any of that in God. He is completely separate from that. He is holy. The other thing that holy, uh, the other meaning, pardon me, that holy carries with it is that idea of transcendence or otherness. This carries with it the idea that God is so holy and completely other than all of his creation. Okay, so you have the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the eternal one. He created everything, every being, every inanimate object, time, space, everything. And he is holy. He is other. He is transcendent. He made human beings in his image, and we are. And I believe that because of that, we are the crown jewel of creation. But God is is other. He is just above and different. He's holy. He is who he is. It's amazing. So again, I believe that, you know, the seraphim covering their eyes and covering their feet is just, again, a sign of their creatureliness that like, even though we are glorious, radiant beings that dwell in God's physical presence, we still cover our feet because the place upon where we stand is unutterably holy. This ground is incredibly holy, and we can't even look at this God directly because his glory and majesty are so brilliant and blinding. You know, that unapproachable light, as the scripture says. It's amazing. This is who God is. You know, this this is who our God is. He is holy, infinitely holy. Okay, you remember guys in Moses, in Exodus, where Moses is a man who loves God, and he's loved by God, and he says, God, I want to see your face. I don't want to just hear your voice and see your works. I want to see your face. And God says, Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Okay, God's glory and holiness would have absolutely crushed and destroyed Moses had he seen God. But what God does is God takes Moses into Mount Sinai, hides him in a cleft of the rock in a cave, and places his hand over the cleft to shield Moses from his glory. God passes by, releases his hand, and Moses sort of sees the afterglow, so to speak, of God's glory. And just that faint little glimpse of God and Moses' face was shining for days and days and days. I mean, that's, and that was just a tiny little whisper of, of who God is. All right. So again, this idea, when we talk about the holiness of God, I really want to just convey, uh, you know, just the transcendent majesty, as R.C. Sproul says, the unutterable majesty of God, of his infinite holiness. It's just incredible. Okay, so let's move on. Let's talk about the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 4, we read, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. So we go on to read that Isaiah says, Woe is me, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Okay, Isaiah says, I am undone. Now, this is interesting. If we were to put this in sort of modern psychological speak, I think at least one of the, the, the meanings we could pull from this is that basically what this means is that when Isaiah caught this brief glimpse of God's unutterable majesty and holiness, he pretty much disintegrated. He just like almost mentally lost it. He just, he came undone. Okay. He was in the presence of infinite eternal holiness and he just came undone. Now, this again is the reason why God said that Moses could not see his face. Isaiah just comes undone. He just, in a sense, you know, and and I know that this isn't, you know, the word undone. I mean, I'm sure there's other things to do with this, but just part of it, you know, is Isaiah, he just comes undone. He just, he just can't even, in a sense, he just can't even take it. He can't stand it. He's just in the presence of unspeakable holiness and he just falls apart. You know, and we see glimpses of that in other parts of the scripture where people have encounters, even just with angels and they fall on their faces and, you know, pass out and they're, you know, they're just completely terrified, you know, and those are just angels, you know, I mean, let alone the the eternal God. Uh, But check this out, guys. This is so cool. And I love this. And this is where we get another insight into the understanding of who God is. You know, what did God do when he saw his servant Isaiah Uh, coming apart, you know, disintegrating, so to speak, you know, at the glimpse of his holiness. What did God do? God sent an angel to grab a piece of coal from off the altar and to cauterize Isaiah's lips and purify him and make atonement for him. All right. And I think in that, guys, we get an awesome, beautiful understanding of the nature of God. You know, when we unholy, sinful human beings who have fallen short of his glory and who through our sin have made ourselves his enemy. When we have an encounter with his holiness, with his majesty, you know, we do, we tend to just come apart. Um, it is understandable. We, we freak out. We get scared. You know, it is, as, as Hebrew says, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But it's there that God meets us, that he purifies us. He loves us. All right. For those of us that are in Christ, you know, the Father reminds us that He's the one who's placed us in Christ and forgiven us of our sins. And He meets us with an assurance of His love and of His grace. Okay. God easily could have killed Isaiah with His holiness and majesty. All right. The weight of God's holiness, uh, were it not for God's mercy, would have absolutely crushed Isaiah in a moment you know, but instead God shielded Isaiah from that and made atonement for Isaiah's sin and loved him greatly. You know, I know that theologically we know this, but sometimes it's good to remind ourselves of this. Okay. God is, is just, we're talking about the holiness of God, his majesty, his holiness, his infinite purity. Okay. Justice for God to give everyone justice would mean that we'd all be going to hell because we're sinners. We've sinned, we've rebelled against God, we've declared ourselves his enemies, as Paul talks about in Romans 5, okay? So justice says that God condemns everyone. But as the word says, as God tells us in his word, he delights in mercy, and he delights in taking away um, the terror and the fear 
okay, which are proper responses to his holiness, you know, and he delights in forgiving us and loving us and making us his sons and his daughters. So as we study the holiness of God and every attribute of God, let us remember that and keep that in mind. God delights to show mercy, okay? He is infinitely holy. His majesty is unutterable. He dwells in unapproachable light. Even pure beings like seraphim cannot even look directly on him because his holiness is so brilliant and, and blinding and pure and weighty and that gravitas that is there. They can't even look on him. And yet that same God who could rightly crush all of us in his holiness because of our sin has chosen instead to show infinite grace by becoming a man and dying in our place and taking his own wrath upon himself in our place to give us eternal life and adoption as sons and daughters. So, man, may you guys remember that. May we all remember that as we study this aspect of God's nature, of his holiness. Now, something I said yesterday, or yesterday, sorry, <laughs> last week, and I want to just remind you guys of this as we go forward in this study of God. Uh, this is true theology, the study of God. Okay, now there's a tendency in our human minds to compartmentalize God's attributes. All right. There's a tendency to say, you know, again, yeah, God is God is is a lot of love. He's pretty holy. He's got a little bit of wrath. He's got some good justice. Okay. That's a very very um poor way to look at God. God is not divided. Okay? God is triune and he is whole. That's another part of being holy. He is whole. He is complete. So every one of his attributes, his holiness, his love, his wrath, his grace, his justice, his mercy, his righteousness, all of his attributes, they're not compartmentalized into percentages. They're all 100% part of who God is. Okay? So his love does not compete with his justice. His holiness does not compete with his friendship towards us. Okay? They're all existing in perfect fullness. You know, and every, every, other, every attribute perfectly exists right alongside of every other attribute of God. That's how great he is. That's how good God is. Now, another thing I want to point out here as we're wrapping up is there can be a tendency within all of us. I know that I find this in myself. <clears throat> uh, the tendency to want to sort of diminish the attributes of God that are not on the surface the most comforting. Okay? I'll be honest. Studying the holiness of God is not the most comforting thing in the world to do. Okay? I'll be completely honest. You know, I love the Lord, and He saved me, and I'm His child, and I know that I'm cleansed by the blood of His Son, and I know that He's justified me and not imputed my sins to me. I know all of that, and I believe that. And I know that I'll get to dwell in His presence for eternity, and that thought is just incredible to me. Uh, But I'll be honest. Okay, when I study God's holiness, his majesty, his wrath, and his righteousness, uh, those things are not necessarily super comforting. But that's okay because I don't know that they're supposed to be. I think it's okay for us to be uncomfortable sometimes. You know, now, um, in our current evangelical climate, um, that's not something that we hear very often. But I think that that is a healthy part of our walk with the Lord, not terror and dread, not fear in that sense, okay? The Lord has freed us from that, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But the fear of the Lord, in the sense of just that reverential awe, that we remember, he, yes, He is our Abba, Father, He's our friend, 
He delights in us. He likes us. He loves us. Okay. And we can just come into his presence boldly before the throne of grace and just enjoy time with our father. And that is 100% true. I affirm that. I believe that with all of my heart. I also believe that we need to remember that although he is father and friend, he's also almighty God and his holiness and his majesty are unspeakable and incomprehensible. They're so big and weighty and so much gravity and and substance to that part of who he is. And that it's healthy that we remember that. Uh, John Calvin, the great reformer, you know, back in the days of the Reformation, he said that true Christian piety exists in two things, to fear God as Lord and King and to love God as Father. And I think there's a beautiful balance in there. You know, that's why I remember a few years ago that ridiculous t-shirt that said, Jesus is my homeboy, you know, and yeah, it's like, yeah, okay, you know, I get the sentiment, but that's really stupid. Uh, (laughs) Yes, he is our friend, and he's that friend that sticks closer than a brother. And yes, he's that, you know, that love, our first love, but he's also almighty God, eternally holy and just, you know, and so I think there's just a great balance in there that as Christians, we get to just live in this, this tension. I think that's good. It's good that we live in tension. You know, Solomon wrote about that in Ecclesiastes, you know, not to be extreme in things. You know, it's good to have a tension there, a middle ground in which we live. Uh, so again, that's a good thing. Now, as we end up here, and I'm going to wrap it up now, and, but I just want to end with this thought. Uh, there's a verse in 1 John that I love. 1 John 4.18 says this, there is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. So when I talk about having that fear of God and trembling in his presence at the thought of his majesty and holiness, I'm not talking about fear in the sense of I'm terrified and I'm scared to death and I don't want anything to do with this God because I'm so afraid of him. That's not what I'm talking about. I know that you know, we use the word fear to mean both things in English. That's unfortunate. And I know that that can come across. That's not what I'm talking about. Jesus, through his cross, has freed us from that terror and dread, that sort of fear, the fear of punishment, the fear of, of being destroyed. That's not the fear that we as Christians are to have of God. Now, unbelievers, yes, that is the fear they should have of God because that's their fate unless they repent and come to Christ. But for us who are believers, when I say the fear of the Lord, I mean what the Bible says. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, as Proverbs says. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's, you know, the fear of the Lord, to to fear doing anything that would, you know, grieve him or hurt him. It's the fear of God as Lord and King, recognizing that he is God and Lord and King and ruler. And that he sits on the throne judging the universe, okay, and all of creation. And that, you know, this God that we serve is immense and eternal. And there's a weightiness and a, and a godly reverence and awe there. And that's what I mean when I say fear. Uh, because that's something I need to remind myself of. And, and I just really want you guys to, to know that that's what I mean when I say fear. Um, again, Jesus through the cross has taken away the terror and dread and fear of punishment and destruction and praise him that we've been delivered from that, as 1 John 4.18 says. So with that said, my prayer for all of us is that we would all just get a fresh glimpse uh, into just the, again, 
As Dr. Sproul says, the unutterable majesty and holiness of God and who he is and this part of his nature and character. And may this lead us to worship him uh, in spirit and in truth in an even deeper and more profound way. In Jesus' name, God bless you. Peace. Thank you once again for joining me for Centuries and Saints. This is your host, Scott, and I hope this teaching on God's holiness was a blessing to you. Again, we will be looking at the holiness of God for the next two episodes, and then we'll be moving on from there. So thanks for staying tuned. Again, go to the podcast store, leave us a review and a rating. Helps get the word out. We really appreciate it. And until next time, once again for Centuries and Saints, this is Scott Matson. God bless you.